Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. 1 Samuel chapter 18. As we're trekking through our study of the shepherd king, the life of King David. Many of you may remember the 90s movie with Mel Gibson, Conspiracy Theory. He's a New York City cab driver who basically believes a lot of these conspiracy theories that he's either heard from talk radio or he's listened to on the internet. And he's, he, he, at first, it appears like he's just another New York City lunatic that's kind of going around New York City, you know, paranoid. And then he kind of catches up with the Julia Roberts character who, she's a city attorney, and they get tangled into a web of danger. And, and after the end of the movie, you kind of wonder, was Mel Gibson actually right about some of these conspiracies. Now, maybe you're one of those people that likes conspiracy theories. Maybe you're suspicious. Maybe you think there's Big Brother watching. Uh, There's a lot of people in our world that basically live in some type of paranoia that maybe their security is going to be threatened. Maybe that their security is going to be threatened. Now, we need to be careful because paranoia is a legitimate psychological issue, and we don't want to make light of that. But probably most of us in this room are not going to be paranoid to paralysis because of some conspiracy theory out there that's floating around. But here's what I think most of us struggle with. And I don't know if it comes from all the way back to the American Revolution, if it comes back to the Declaration of of Independence, but there is something in the American psyche. There's something in all of us, especially as Americans, that, 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 that does not, it actually hates having somebody tell us what to do. We don't like an outside authority to come in and tell us how to live. We get very uncomfortable when some type of authority, maybe it's a government, maybe it's our boss, maybe it's our parent, comes to us from the outside and says, I am an authority over your life, here's how you're to, to act. We don't like that. We, we do not like that. We like, we like to be in control. We, we don't easily surrender our rights because we want to be in charge. We want to call the shots. We do not like, as a matter of fact, we take offense for somebody to come and just have the nerve the gall to actually tell us what to do. Heaven forbid there's an outside authority that would come and actually tell us what to do. We don't like it. We hate it as Americans. But you know what's even scarier? How does this translate into your relationship with Jesus? How does this translate into your relationship with Jesus? Could we be actually in danger of? Could we, could, we, could we actually be angry that Jesus comes and threatens our security by being an authority, by being the rightful king of our lives to tell us how to live and what to believe? How do you respond to the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life this morning? Do you have a hard time surrendering your rights to King Jesus and bowing in submission before him, 
like we sang earlier, Lord, I give you all of me. I'm not holding anything back. You, you have rights over my life. Last week, we saw the story of David and Goliath. How God honored his name and saved his people through the weakness of his chosen king. And if you remember, I said, we're not David in the story. We're Israel on the sidelines, paralyzed in fear, and so we need a man in the middle, David, to come and slay the giant. And we, we basically said that David is a picture of Christ and how Christ is the man in the middle. Christ is the one meteor that comes, and he slayed the giant of the world, the flesh, and the devil by dying on the cross and rising again, giving us the victory. And so we're going to transition here into chapter 18 this morning. And one thing we need to remember about David is that even though he's actually not on the throne yet, even though he's not actually been exalted to the throne because Saul's still alive, he is still the rightful king of Israel. He is the man after God's own heart. He is the Messiah, if you will, for that time. He's been anointed by Samuel as the shepherd king, and the Holy Spirit has rushed upon him with power and victory. Now, one of the things that we're going to see in chapter 18 over and over again, it shows up four times, it's the key issue, is that David had success. David had success. David had more success. David had great success. And the question we ask is, well, then why did David have great success? Well, three times in this passage that we're going to read, the reason that David had success, it very simply says, the Lord was with David. The Lord was with David and granted him success. There's something interesting about David being successful. Because this phrase, David had success, is used of David more than any other Old Testament person. If there was something about David that we could say, we could put on a billboard and say, this is what is all about David, it's that he had success. But it's interesting what that word success means. That word success is often used in the Old Testament to refer to having wisdom or understanding when it comes to God's word. So we have to ask the question, what is true success in God's eyes? True success in God's eyes is the ability to read his word and understand his word and live according to his word. And that's why David was successful. Especially in the Psalms, a lot of times the word success or prosper means to understand God's word. Deuteronomy 29.9, Moses writes to the people before they enter the promised land, Therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do, that you may be successful, that you may prosper. You see, David was successful, David prospered, David had success, God blessed him because he was a man after God's own heart who knew and understand God's word and lived according to that wisdom. And so all throughout chapter 18, when we get here, David's going to have success after success after success, and there's two responses to the success of David. You either hate him or you love him. There's either devotion or denial. You will either esteem David or you will be envious of David. You will either adore him or you will be angered by him. You will either want to male bond with him or you will want to murder him. That's what we're going to see in chapter 18. This chapter divides into three scenes. And these three scenes show the sharp contrast between 
Jonathan's response to David and King Saul's response to David. And they both respond to David because the Lord's with him and has great success, but they're two diametrically opposed responses to the king. And each scene has this refrain at the end of it. The Lord gave David great success. The Lord was with David. He had great success. And this success is going to bring two responses. Devotion or denial. Esteem or envy. Adoration or anger. Male bonding or murder. So let's see it unfold this morning. Let's look at the first scene, this poignant interaction between David and Jonathan. So let's pick up in in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. This is right on the tales of killing Goliath. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that, he was, on, that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. You have this interesting scene where the soul of David and the soul of Jonathan are knit together into this unique type of deep friendship. It's a deep male bonding type of friendship. Now let me just tell you what this is not before you get uncomfortable. There are those in our day today that are making this argument What we have here is David and Jonathan in a homosexual relationship. You will hear that. They will say that that's obviously a homosexual relationship. Their souls were knit together. They loved each other as they loved a woman. Obviously, this was a a homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan. We can reject that for two reasons. Here's here's reason number one. The word used for love there, that, that David and Jonathan loved each other, is never ever used anywhere else in the Bible to relate to homosexual activity, and it's never used to talk about even heterosexual sexual activity. It is a word that conveys this deep friendship. It's a deep friendship. Now, men, we shouldn't be afraid of this, okay? I know it's a little uncomfortable for for men to, to talk about things like this because our wives and the women that we know in our lives... They're easier at making friends. I think women just tend to talk and and they tend to bear their souls and women tend to just be more relational. Us guys, what what are we like? We're like closed books. We we tend to put up walls. We don't want to really have deep relationships. We're more task-oriented. But let me just say this, men. Probably we, we, we wouldn't admit this out loud, but deep in our souls, I think we crave deep relationships with other men that are platonic, a band of brothers, other men that we can have deep relationships with, that can hold us accountable, that we can share our hearts with, that can be our friends. And I think it's very important that we as men have those godly relationships with other men. 
I know sometimes it's hard because it means that we have to make ourselves vulnerable, but I think God has set a precipice here, a principle here, that, that it's, it's important for men especially to have relationships with other men that are healthy, that are, that are, that are godly, that are, that are deep. Now, the other thing, that, the other reason why we can reject it just because of the grammars, what have we just seen in chapter 17 with David and Goliath? Why did David kill Goliath? Because he was blaspheming the name of the living God, and David understood the law of God. Why in the world would David break God's commandment that talks about sexual ethics back in Leviticus related to homosexual behavior? David would never break that commandment. Now, there's some sexual things David breaks, but we haven't gotten to that yet until we get to Bathsheba. But what I think is going on here is really Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think what we see here in David and Jonathan are two hearts that come together and they're bound by worship of God. They share something in common about their relationship with God. What do we know about Jonathan before this event? What do we know about the life of Jonathan? We haven't looked at Jonathan. We've, we started with Saul. But let me take you back to 1 Samuel 14 for just a moment. Flip back a few chapters and go to 1 Samuel 14. And I want you to see what the first time we're really introduced to, to Jonathan is he goes into battle with his armor bearer against the Philistines. Now what did we see last week? David goes into armor against the Philistines, and he wins, right? David wins against Goliath. So David has a victory over Goliath. And what was David? What did we look at last week? The whole reason David won was because he had faith in the living God. Now, what do we see here about Jonathan? Look at chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. What's Jonathan's mindset here? If we're going to go win this battle, it's because the Lord saves. We have faith in the Lord. The Lord's going to deliver us. We're going to go into battle because the battle's the Lord's. And then you find out at the end of the chapter, look at verse 23, not at the end of the chapter, but at the end of, the, end of this, this, this story. Verse 23, what does it say? So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Aven. You see, what unites these two men together besides their military conquering of the Philistines? Yeah, they, they were a band of brothers in the sense that they had the same kind of military background. They, they both killed a Philistine. What really drew these two men together was their belief in the salvation of God. So the basis of their friendship was their worship of the living God. They lived out what was the first greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment and what's the second greatest commandment according to Jesus? What are the two great commandments? In Matthew 22, 37 through 39, what does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. That is what David and Jonathan did. They loved the Lord their God with their whole heart, soul, and mind. But then what's the second commandment? It's like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you see that the foundation for David and Jonathan's friendship was their love first for God and then for each other. And David 
And Jonathan, it's interesting here because Jonathan takes it a step further. In verse 3 there, go back to chapter 18. In verse 3, Jonathan is the one who initiates making a covenant with David. Literally, cut a covenant with David. Now, what does it mean to cut a covenant? Here's probably what David and Jonathan did. It's very important the way they did this back in that day. They would sacrifice an animal. And they would cut the animal in two. And they would put one half of the animal on one side of the altar and the other half of the animal on the other side of the altar. And and David and Jonathan would walk between the two pieces of the covenant that was cut and they would swear in, in, in the oath of blood that they were uniting themselves to one another. It was like they were becoming blood brothers and they cut a covenant with each other in blood with the sacrificed animal. That's the way they did it back in that day. And to take it even further, what does Jonathan do? Jonathan strips himself of his royal robe. Look there in verse 4. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now you may think, well, what's the big deal that, 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 that Jonathan stripped himself of his armor and gave all of his armor and everything to David? Do you realize the symbolism of what's going on here? Who's first in line to the throne? Jonathan. And so Jonathan basically in an act of humility says, I'm going to strip myself of all my rights, everything that defines me. I am going to bow before you, David. You're the rightful king, and I'm giving you everything. Jonathan's not jealous of David. Jonathan's not threatened. As a matter of fact, what does Jonathan see? David, you're the true king, not my dad. So basically, in a symbolic way, basically, Jonathan's given David everything. I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. I'm stripping myself of my robe. I'm stripping myself of my armor. I'm giving you my sword. I'm giving you everything, David. Everything is yours. This is an awesome act of humility. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Let's get real practical. What can we see about friendship from David and Jonathan? Let me give you three things about friendships. And and let me talk to, to the youth and to the children this morning. Because I think youth and children, you guys crave friendships. What type of friendship should you be looking for? And even adults. What type of, what's a healthy friendship? What type of friendship should we be looking for? Especially youth. Okay? And teenagers. And children. And young adults. Let's, let's look at three aspects of good friendship here. Here's number one. Their friendship, first and foremost, was rooted in their love for God. That's the most important thing in any friendship. Does the other person love God? Do they have a heart for God? Is the basis of your friendship godly? Do you have the camaraderie of Christ being the center of your relationship? Can you talk about spiritual things? Is Christ the center of your relationship? Number two, their friendship was marked by true commitment and loyalty. You see, this wasn't a fair-weathered friend type thing. This wasn't shallow. This wasn't self-serving. This is where the two came together and said, we're going to be loyal to one another. You need to be a friend that's loyal. You need to find a friend that's loyal. Through thick and thin, that's going to stand by you, that's going to love you warts and all, that's not in it for personal gain, that's not in it just to to use you, but truly loves you for who you are and, and is committed to you and is loyal to you. And number three, their friendship demonstrated humility. You see, in their friendship, there was no jockeying for position. There was no ego. And so when you have a friend with a, when you're friends with somebody, you need to be humble and giving 
and self-sacrificing. So, so what, are th- what are aspects? three aspects of a good friendship? Is Christ the sinner? Is there commitment and loyalty? And is there humility? And I'll make a guarantee. If you are a friend like that, there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You're going to have a friend for life if you demonstrate that type of friendship. Now look at the end of verse 5. How does it end? David went out and was successful wherever he went. He's successful because the Lord was with him. And so how does Jonathan, how does Jonathan respond to David? Jonathan loves him. Jonathan adores him. Jonathan esteems him. Jonathan gives him devotion. There's this friendship, the uniting of their souls together, this submission, this humility. Okay? But let's just see the exact opposite response. If that's the first response, the second response is not going to be esteem. It's going to be envy. It's not going to be devotion. It's going to be denial. It's not going to be adoration. It's going to be anger. It's not going to be male bonding. It's going to be attempted murder. It's not going to be love. It's going to be loathing. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. As they were coming home from killing Goliath, When David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women, the groupies, the cheerleaders came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another. This is hilarious. The women sang to one another as they celebrated. I can just picture this. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. I mean, can't you picture it? Can't you picture all these women just jumping around with tambourines? Like the groupies, the cheerleaders. I mean, and they're in a frenzy here. It's like, you know... Saul, you're cool. You killed a thousand. We'll give you that. But David, he's the man. He's killed his tens of thousands. He killed the giant. Now, if you're the king, how are you going to respond to this? Are you going to take this lying down? Are you going to be real happy about this? You've already been embarrassed because David was the one that went down into the field and and killed Goliath instead of you. Let's see how the king responds. And sorry for that. This sounded like a really bad Monty Python episode. I apologize for that. All right, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and some of you went right over your heads. Verse 8, Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David played the lyre as he did day by day. And Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. But he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful all of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Verse 8. Literally, Saul got hot. Saul kindled with anger. It galled him. It embittered him. And then in verse 9, he has this, Saul eyed David. Literally, Saul gave him the evil eye. It was either an eye of jealousy or it was an eye intent to do him harm. And, and, and as a matter of fact, it's, not, it's, not, it's bad enough that David had just seen this huge spear come from Goliath. Now he has to see the spear from a raving madman. Don't ask me to explain verse 10. Theologically, I can't explain it. I don't understand it. 
but it's in the Bible and I believe it. Somehow a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. And he went into a prophetic trance. That's what the word raves means. He went into a prophetic trance, going around the house, babbling like a a crazed lunatic, and, and tried to throw his spear at David two times. I have no idea how to explain that other than it's there, it happened, and we believe it. But verse 12 is probably the most telling. Verse 12 is probably the most telling statement in this entire story. You can almost pass over it if you don't pay quite close attention. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David. Why? Why was Saul afraid? Because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. What's the real root cause of Saul's anger and envy? He'd been rejected by God. God's presence had left him. He was no longer the anointed king. You remember a few weeks ago when the kingdom was torn from him. And now he sees David having all this great success and he's fearful, he's envious, he's prideful, he's paranoid to the point of wanting to kill David. Now, here's a good question to ask yourself, adults, or even youth or children. How do you respond to the success of others who are truly godly, They're not doing anything evil or bad, but they're truly succeeding or prospering, and they're godly. How do you respond to that when it's not you? When you're not experiencing the same type of success? Do you rejoice with that person? Do you come along and encourage that person? Do you cheer for that person? Do you desire to come alongside them and encourage them and see evidences of God's grace in their life? Or, I think the tendency of most of us is do we get jealous? Do we get envious? Do we get manipulative? Do we get resentful? You see, here's a true mark of Christian maturity. Your ability to rejoice with others who are succeeding better than you are and to to rejoice with them. It may just not be your time yet or God may have a different plan for you, but one of the true marks of spiritual maturity is to see somebody else who's who's maybe succeeding more than you or or, or doing something better than you or or perceived to be uh, better than you in some way and instead of you being resentful and you being prideful and you being jealous you come alongside them and say hey i love you i want to encourage you god's really doing a great work in your life now twice here it says in verses 12 and 14 the lord was with david the lord was with david Verse 14, David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And how does this final scene end? The way the first scene ended. David had success. Verse verse 14, David had success. Verse 15, and when Saul saw that he had great success. So so here it ends. David has success. David has success. The Lord's all over him. He's the anointed. Everything's going right for David. And Jonathan loves him. Jonathan admires him. Jonathan's coming along and encouraging him, but Saul wants to kill him. Saul is threatened by him. Saul is denying him. Saul is rejecting him. Now let's go ahead and see what's going to happen next in scene three. If Saul can't kill David himself by pinning him to the wall, here's Saul's second best thing. I'll send him out to battle. Odds are that if he's out in battle all the time, he's going to get killed in battle and my hands will be clean. He can get killed on the battlefield and I'll get rid of him once and for all. So let's keep reading. Verse 17. Saul said to David, Here's my elder daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. 
And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholahite, for a wife. Now we have no idea why Saul did that. He reneged. David, I'm going to give you my wife, my daughter as your wife. David says, I don't deserve her. And Saul says, yeah, you're right, you don't deserve her. And so he says, okay, you're not going to get her. Okay, he's a madman, okay? We, we just have to remember, Saul is a madman at times. If you have a guy you know, roaming around his palace chucking spears at you, babbling, you're not going to take what he says a lot of times seriously. But he's going to use his daughter, his other daughter, to his advantage. Because what does he find out? Let's keep reading. Verse 20. Saul's other daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul. And the thing pleased him. Ah, I've got an idea. Saul thought, verse 21, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall, not, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delighted in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I'm a poor man? and have no reputation. You see David's humility there? He's basically saying, I, I don't deserve to be the king's son-in-law. I, I, I have no reputation. I have no nobility. I'm a nobody. I mean, David's really a humble guy there. And then in verse 24, the servants of, the, of Saul told him thus and so David did speak. Then Saul said, thus you shall say to David, the king desires no bride price, we'll have to deal with this in a minute, except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged to the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law before the time had expired. David arose and went out along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, there's the third time, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. And the commander of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Saul says, okay, I'm going to give my second daughter to David. But in verse 21, he says, the reason I'm giving her to him is that she might be a snare. You may think, as I read this, I thought, now what is, what's going on here? Why would Michael be a snare to David? What does a snare mean? What's a trap, a bait? What, what's she going to bait him in? What's she going to trip him up in? Well, as I did a little bit more digging and kind of looked at that Hebrew word snare, it's interesting that in Exodus and in Deuteronomy and other places, that word almost always shows up with idolatry and somebody leading Israel into idolatry. I mean, you see it in Exodus 34. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. The other gods of the Canaanites, the Philistines, they're going to be a snare to you, so worship the one true God. Deuteronomy 7, 16. You shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. You shall not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Now, we don't know exactly what Saul knew about his daughter. Either maybe he was hallucinating and thought his daughter was ungodly, or maybe she really was ungodly, but in Saul's mind, he's going to give 
Michael to David as a way to trip David up. Maybe she'll be a snare and lead him into idolatry. Maybe she'll lead him to deny God. Maybe she'll lead him down a path. And then he'll lose all the accolades. He'll lose all the honor. His reputation will fall flat. He'll fall flat on his face. And she will be a snare to him. Great father, right? Way to use your daughter. But paranoia will do anything. And it'll make you do anything. But it doesn't come without a bride price. Saul thinks, okay, here's another way to kill David. I'll give him this impossible task. Go kill 100 Philistines and bring back their foreskins. Parents, talk to your kids about that later. All I can tell you is that it happened after they were dead, so it wasn't as brutal as you thought. So David comes back, and he brings 200 foreskins, which is interesting because David takes the chance. It's not a big deal to David. 200 Philistines, not a big deal. I just killed Goliath. He's a man of war. He's brave. And Saul's thinking, every time I'm trying to bait this guy, every time I'm trying to kill this guy, he escapes. I throw a a spear at him, he escapes twice. I send him out to battle, he doesn't die. I give him my daughter. All these things, it's not working. And here's why, Saul. Everywhere David goes, he has success because the Lord was with him. And Saul seals his fate. Look at verse 29. Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. They're enemies continually. He sealed his fate. He's going to deny, rebel, hate David for the rest of his life. Now, how would you expect this final scene to end? With success. Verse 30, David had more success than all of the servants. So this entire chapter centers around David having success, and there's two responses to David. You either hate him or you love him. You either deny him or you give him devotion. You either esteem him or you envy him. You either hate him or you love him. Now let's make this real practical to you this morning. Remember, David is a type of Christ. David is a picture of Christ. Jesus is the true anointed king of Israel. Jesus is the true shepherd king. Jesus is the true Lord of lords, king of kings. And there are only two responses to Jesus. Devotion or denial. As the king, Jesus has rightful ownership over your life. He has the right to rule. He has the right to be Lord. He has the right to come to you and say, I demand everything of you to follow me he demands our ultimate allegiance what did jesus say in luke 9 23 and 25 out of the words of jesus if anyone would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself You see, there are only two responses to Jesus. Devotion or denial. And you can be like Saul. The way that Saul responded to King David. You can see Jesus as a threat. I'm a little bit angered at Jesus' right to come and tell me how to live. I'm a little bit angered and paranoid that he threatens my security. He's asking me to to, to give up everything to follow him. He wants me to give up all. I don't like that. 
He doesn't have the right to rule my life. I'm the rightful king. I'm King Saul. And you could say, you know what? I'm the king of my life. I'm the rightful ruler of my life. Jesus has no right to come and, and do anything with me. And sometimes as Christians, we can even be resentful of Jesus at times. We, we can resent. We wouldn't dare say this out loud, but in our minds sometimes we can be resentful and say, you know what? I really don't like Jesus meddling in my business. If I just came to church and sang some praise songs and just, you know, kind of showed him that I was a little bit religious, but when I walk out those doors and live my life, I don't want anything to, hit for, for, to do with him because he's going to come and threaten what I consider to be my life. And we're afraid. And we don't want the rightful king, to rule us. But let me tell you the consequences of that. There are dire consequences of acting the way King Saul acted. King Saul denied the rightful king. Go back and look at verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. The Lord had departed from Saul. The Lord had left Saul. The Lord said, I'm leaving you, Saul. Listen to the words of Jesus. If you do the same thing in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many, that's the scariest thing, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Saul had to face the bitterness of God departing from him. And if you act the same way Saul acted towards David and you act that way towards Jesus, you will hear those same words, depart from me. I never knew you. The consequence of denying the rightful king in your life is eternal separation from that king forever. That's one way to respond to Jesus. You can deny him. You can be angry at him. You can say, Jesus, get out of my life. You're not the rightful king. I don't want anything to do with you. I've got my life in control. Thank you very much. Or there's a better way to respond. How did Jonathan respond to David? With devotion. How did Jonathan respond to David? Jonathan bowed down, stripped himself of his robe, gave everything to David and said, it's all yours because you're the rightful king. You see, that's what Christ is calling us to do. He's calling us to strip ourselves of all rights, to strip ourselves of everything that we think that we own and to bow before him and say, Jesus, it's all yours. You own it anyway. And Jesus, the reason that I'm giving this all to you is because just like Jonathan loved David, I love you, Jesus. I honor you, Jesus. You're my all in all, Jesus. You're my everything. You've died for my sins. You've risen again. You're, you're worthy to be worshipped. You're worthy to be praised. Why in the world would I not give up all to follow you because you're worth it, Jesus? Yes, come be Lord of my life. Yes, come rule and reign because you're the king and I love you. And what's the joy of that? What's the, what's the consequence or joy of giving your life to Jesus? It's amazing. What happened to David and Jonathan when they came together in this cool friendship? It says their souls were knitted together. What happens to you when you become a Christian? 
pardon the expression, but your soul gets knitted to Jesus' soul. And you come together in this unique love relationship that's like nothing else you've ever experienced. You see, you get into a powerful covenant with the living God where Jesus says, even though you're a sinner, I'm going to accept you. And when when you become a Christian, the Bible says you're one in Christ. You're united with Christ. Listen to what, what, what Ephesians says about how much God's loved us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were dead, we were helpless, we were lost. What did Jesus do? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Think about how much Jesus loves you. Think about the unique love relationship that happens when you surrender all rights to the king. You get into that relationship where your soul is knit to Jesus' soul and he loves you in covenant relationship and he'll never let you go. And the question then becomes, well, how in the world do you get into that? How is the world, how in the world is this type of unique, close relationship with Jesus even possible? Well, a covenant had to be cut in blood. Remember what I said happened with David and Jonathan? They killed an animal, and they walked between the pieces, sealing their covenant in blood. You know what God did to cut the covenant with us so that we could have this love relationship with Christ? He sent his very own son as the Lamb of God to take away our sins. God cut the covenant in the blood of his son on the cross where he poured out his life unto death and he rose again so that you and I might be forgiven of that sin and we might be cleansed and we might be able to enter into a right relationship with the living God. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that's Jesus, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There's only two ways to respond to Jesus this morning. Devotion or denial. Would you this morning strip yourself of all of your rights and come before the throne of King Jesus who is the sacrifice and bow before him and say, Jesus, it's all yours. You own it anyway, but I'm freely giving it to you. Because I love you, and you're worth it, and I want to experience what I could never earn for myself, what I could never gain for myself, what I could never accomplish for myself, this powerful, covenant, unique relationship with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again. So what's your response going to be? What's your response to the rightful king? Devotion or denial? Those are the only two choices. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Devotion or denial? Esteem or envy? Adoration or anger? Love or loathing? Worship or warfare? There's no middle ground. He is the king. 
He's the rightful king. And he loved us so much that he died in our place that we might be forgiven. So would you spend some time this morning evaluating where your heart is and going before God in prayer? Come into your presence this morning, and the only way we can enter is through the merits of King Jesus. And we've seen this visual imagery, Lord, in our Bibles of a man stripping himself of all rights and bowing before the rightful king and entering into this covenant love relationship that was binding. And Lord, it was a powerful human friendship, probably the most powerful of of, of human friendships there can be. But we get to experience oh so much more. Because ours is not just a friendship with another human being. Ours is friendship with you, Jesus. And the Bible says you're the friend of sinners. And you want to be our friend. And you've laid down your life for your friends. And you shed your blood on the cross so that enemies could be made friends. So my prayer this morning is that nobody would leave this room denying you, Jesus that all of us would leave this room living lives of total devotion to you as the rightful king of our lives. May we honor you not only with our lips, but with our lives. Would we live in such a way that shows the world how much we truly do love you. And thank you, Jesus, that you love us in such a unique and powerful way that you gave up your life on the cross, died a cruel death, took upon the sin we should have experienced forever and rose again that we might be forgiven, we might be accepted, we might enter into that love relationship with God that only comes through your blood, Jesus. Thank you. We love you. We honor you. We adore you. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen.